Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and this episode I'm speaking with Michael Goldberg, a founder and portfolio manager of the Collins Street Value Fund. In this episode, Michael talks about why value investing isn't dead and why fundamentals matter. He's been managing the strategy and the fund for what's coming up to six years in February 2022. And during that time, he's achieved a compound annual return of 19.5%, which would suggest, in fact, value investing is not dead, at least his style of it. Please remember this podcast isn't designed to be, nor is it, specific advice. Listeners are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast, as well as seeking any advice they require or seeking advice prior to making any potential investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming through. You can email me as always at david.clark at codacapital.com. And I also have to add that we are getting back onto our 100th episode function, which will run as a live event in Sydney and also Melbourne. If you're interested in coming along to that, please email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Look forward to speaking with you. Thanks a lot. Michael Goldberg, welcome to Inside the Road. David, thank you very much for having me. Michael, perhaps you could kick off for our listeners by giving them an understanding of who you are and your background. Goodness, how long do we have for this interview? Um, I suppose I'm Melbourne born and bred. I, uh, I graduated from Caulfield Grammar School in Caulfield. I then spent a couple of years overseas studying in seminary before I came back to university at Monash University. Um, I did banking and finance and the thought at the time was that I was keen to get into the, the, the broking industry or at least what I imagined the broking industry represented. Um, unfortunately for myself at the same time that I was coming through the system, we also had the, the, the uh, introduction of of, of low-cost brokers and so the, the the once highly regarded and exclusive world of, of stockbrokers and their clients changed radically as I was as I was coming to, to to maturity I suppose and so I began to resolve myself to the fact that I might end up a disgruntled back office employee at uh, at one of the big four banks and thankfully that's not the way things went I, I got my degree I found a job almost exactly um, in the space and, and and the sort of culture that I was after. And, and I built up a client base looking after portfolios for high net worth individuals and family offices and a couple of charity tr- charitable trusts. Um, I was there for about eight years, uh, a wealth manager out of, out of Melbourne, originally out of Turek, and then moved to, to the city in, in Melbourne. Um, before 2015, a colleague, of my, a colleague of mine and myself started to go off on our own and see if we could launch our own business. And we launched the Constitute Valley Fund. So we've been going now for almost six years. February will be our sixth year anniversary, and we've been kicking some fabulous goals. You know, I think we're running at about 19.5% annualized returns since inception, which has been fantastic. You know, we're finding ideas in all sorts of markets. It's been certainly a challenge. It's been certainly exciting, and it's been profitable for, for all of our investors and ourselves as well. So it's, it's, been, it's been an interesting journey for sure. So what's the objective of the Collins Street Value Fund, and, and what is its mandate? Yeah, look, I think the mandate is pretty simple. You know, we would, I suppose, call ourselves opportunistic value investors. 
I think from the mandate's perspective, really our mandate is just to invest in our favorite Australian listed ideas. So we're not looking to build a broad ETF. We're not looking to get broad exposure to all the different sectors within the ASX market. Our focus is exclusively on identifying those ideas that we have the most conviction in and then investing in those conviction ideas um, in a material way such that when we ultimately get it right, hopefully we get it right more often than not. And so for that's been the case, um, it's able to impact on our portfolio. So it's it's not a fund that's necessarily for everybody. We, we appreciate that. A lot of people want broad market exposure. If that's what you're after, constant value fund isn't for you. But if you like the concept of opportunistic investing, if you like the the idea of contrarian investing, if you like the idea of value investing, um, you know, we've we've been able to cater to our clients by providing this 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 focused concentrated portfolio that's been able to do quite well over the years. Are you talking all listed equities? Yes, the, the mandate is Australian listed equities. Uh, we have one that snuck over to, to London after we bought it in Australia. We've, we've held on to that and we've been able to maintain and, and manage that position. But our mandate is um, is for Australian listed equities, yeah, 100%. And, and how big or small can you go in Australian listed equities? It's, it's, it's an interesting question. I think the smallest company we've ever invested in was probably around $50, $60 million. Um, I think the largest company would be I think ANZ Bank, which is in the $80 billion range. So we don't really have a specific target where, you know, we haven't boxed ourselves into be large cap, small cap, you know, medium cap. We're, we're happy to find value wherever it can be found. So if it's in ANZ, wonderful. If it's in, you know, one of our small holdings at the moment, Boom Logistics, Australia's largest crane, um, crane company, we're happy to invest there. I think the question for us is less about the market cap of the business and more about our ability to, get into a position and then ultimately exit the position. So, you know, I mean, no doubt you follow markets pretty closely and no doubt you've noticed over, over your time watching markets that you can have a $10 billion company that has less liquidity and is traded less frequently than a $200 million company. So for us, the question really is, if we're looking to invest, you know, a five or 10% position of our, you know, based on our investable capital, can we get that volume? Can we get in and can we get out of that volume in this particular company? So. That really dictates the sort of companies that we look at. I think our sweet spot's probably somewhere in the vicinity, um, you know, or north of two, three hundred million dollars. But again, it, it depends on the business, it depends on the circumstances, and it also depends on on how we take our position. You know, obviously, if you go into the market, the market needs to provide that liquidity. But if you've got, you know, some sort of alternative way to to enter and exit, then you could potentially invest in smaller companies as well. And and what size is the fund, Michael? And is that restricted anyway going forward? Well, to answer the first, the second question first, um, I suspect there will be limitations or, or capacity constraints for the fund. Um, it's the sort of thing that I think we'll know when we get there and we're continuously assessing it. We suspect if markets were to be similar to the sort of environment that we're in at the moment, we think we can probably manage a portfolio using our same mandate and our same processes and our same approach to probably about $350, $450 million. Um, at the moment, we're at about $160 million. So we've come away. So we started with, I think it was $1.2 million in our first month, and we've we've grown really, really well over the last almost six years. I imagine that um, that at some point, when it gets to the point where we reach capacity, um, we'll have to self-close the fund. Now, the reason that's important is is because we don't actually charge a fixed management fee. So it's not just about protecting our investors' interests, which are, of course, a primary concern, but there's also a selfish interest involved here as well. At the point that we can't generate the sorts of returns that we're, well, that our clients have become, you know, come to expect from us, that we expect from ourselves, there's not really any value for us in growing the fund. You know, if we had a billion dollars and we couldn't do any, you know, if we couldn't generate returns, well, we're not getting paid. So we'd much rather stay 
the right size to take advantage of the sorts of opportunities and ideas that we're finding. And that works out best for everybody involved. And Michael, what sort of quantum of returns are those in your mind that you think the fund's capable of and should be aiming for in the long term? I think it's a difficult question. I'll, I'll, I'll find solace in, in your comment in reference to the long term. So if it doesn't prove to be right in the short term, I'll say, well, I said long term. Um, look, we've done 19.5% and I am thrilled about 19.5%. I think if somebody were to ask me when we launched this fund or, you know, if someone were to ask me as an investor, what sort of return are you looking for over the long term, I would be plenty happy with double-digit returns, you know, somewhere between the 12 and 15% mark. Um, hopefully that's achievable. Certainly the market over the long term has achieved around about 11, 12% per annum annualized. And, you know, our view is that if we can't add value on top of that, then we really have no business being in the business of looking after other people's money. So, you know, no promises, certainly. We've done 19.5% the journey thus far. Um, I hope that we can sustain that into the future. Um, but, you know, certainly when we assess a company, and, and we're projecting for ourselves internally what we hope to achieve out of that company, um, we would expect mid-double-digit returns, at least from that company. And Michael, the, the name of the fund, uh, Value Fund, um, how do you define value yeah, that style of investing? It's a wonderful question because I think value investing means many different things to, to many different people. For us, you know, I, I don't like to get caught up in the, in, in the labeling of things. And certainly, you know, that, that's not to say that, that I don't think there are definitions. Certainly value investment means something to us, but it might mean something different to somebody else. So I'm rambling here a little bit, but <laughs> we've pushed up the shelf. I think what we're trying to achieve is pretty simple. Um, we're out there looking to try and find a dollar worth of assets that we can pick up for 50 cents. Um, now, practically speaking, there are there are a couple of sort of factors that, that drive us towards finding these sorts of opportunities. I think the first one um, that plays a big part in our process is, is getting comfortable being uncomfortable. So, so from a philosophical perspective, you know, we, we tend to think that, you know, the market tends to be ordinarily pretty well-informed, but there are pockets of opportunity where if you can get an information advantage, you can benefit substantially on the return side. So the first thing we say is, you know, we're looking for that information advantage. How do we get it? We've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. But that means looking in sectors or businesses that the market don't like for one reason or another. And it also means doing the due diligence or research that might feel a little bit weird um, to normal people. <laughs> and that's fair enough. You know, I, I think a little bit of discomfort is a very fair price to pay for, for success and our performance. I'll, I'll give you an example if you're interested. I'm not sure, again, how long, long I've gone. If, if, if I shut this out too long, let me know and we'll, we'll push ahead. But, you know, one example of being comfortable, being uncomfortable is, is during the COVID crash while I was working from home, as the rest of Victoria was, um, I had my teenage daughter who was um, doing her homeschooling in the other room and she had a project that was supposed to do some research. She was supposed to do some research on the impact of COVID-19 on local businesses. And she came in and she knocked on my door and said, you know, Daddy, I, I know that you're obviously involved in business. That's, that's sort of your, part of your day-to-day -day, um, day -day focus. You know, can you help me with this project? And I said to her, look, I'm, I'm not going to do the project for you, but I actually have to do some research on one of these companies that I currently own, National Tire and Wheel. I said, if you're prepared to make some phone calls with me, I think we could we could we could get a, a point of difference and an and information advantage for myself, and I think you could potentially get some really good research for your uh, for your project. So so we plotted out. I think it was about eight different um, tire and wheel companies around Victoria, New South Wales, and I had one of my colleagues do some research in in Queensland and elsewhere as well. 
and uh, and we called them up. We started asking questions, and it, it it is a strange sensation to call up a company and speak to a person who you've never spoken to before. It is certainly awkward. Um, I will admit that they were far more giving and patient for my daughter when she asked them the, the same sort of questions as I was asking. But you know, stepping out of our comfort zone, sort of getting out from behind the computer screen. I think there are plenty of opportunities out there where if you can do that a little bit more, if you can do something a little bit different, you can get that information advantage and it's really, really beneficial. So, so to cut a long story short, my daughter went away and she wrote her project. She ended up getting an A, which is wonderful. Um, I walked away and we doubled down on our existing position on National Tire Wheel at 28 cents. And it's currently trading uh, north of dollar. So we did quite well out of that as well. Sounds again, like you it, got an A as well. I got well. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if, only, if only it was always that easy, you know? obviously whatever whatever company you're looking at the process of getting that information advantage is going to be different you know when we when we invested in um in AZ bank say one of our earlier investments for the fund there was not going to be a bunch of benefit for me to say go down to the Burke street branch and ask you know what's your customer flow been like what does your till look like at the moment that's likely to get me thrown, thrown in jail and and not add much benefit but yeah you know, when we looked at retail food group you know vast went down and you know had 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 a, had, a, had a couple of weeks of you know testing out donuts and coffees and and talking to staff and customers and and really getting a sense for how the business worked. You know when we looked at buying um, uh, Metcash back in the day, we, we we visited some fifteen stores across Victoria to to get a sense how the owners felt about some of the new implementations that the company was putting into place. So every company will be slightly different, but again, you know we find that when we have these conversations. You know, we almost always ask, you know, has have any other brokers, has anybody else, have any analysts or, or fund managers come and have a chat to you about these sorts of things? And, and the answer inevitably is no. And I feel like it's such a strange thing because, you know, a share in a company is not some abstract idea. It's, it's, it's a part of the business. And if you were looking to buy a business, you would think that one of the things you would do is visit operations and have a chat to people who are buying from it and operating it. So, you know, our, our view is if you do it in the real world, buying a real business, you should do the same sort of work when you're buying a share of these businesses as well. And then I think the third point, and this this is also highly important, it's it's it's, it's a cornerstone, I think, of, of how we've been able to generate the sorts of returns that we have over the journey, is that once you've done that work, you know, once you've once you've found that information advantage, once you've got, gone and been uncomfortable in search of that information advantage, you've got to take advantage of it. You've got to invest with conviction. So from, from our philosoph- from our philosophical perspective, once we do the work, we want to invest in a way that can meaningfully impact our portfolio. You know, I was having a chat with um with someone the other day about acting with conviction. And I said, you know, I say it every day when, you know, as, as it relates to investing. But the truth is, it really is something that should resonate across all aspects of your life. You know, if you find a person that you really, really like, you should commit to that. You know, you should commit to that with conviction. If you find you can, if you're keen on on a hobby, you should invest in that hobby with conviction. You always get more out of something when you become a connoisseur in that. When you really put some focus in it. So, you know, that 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 is, I think, at the at the heart of of our process and the heart of our concentrated portfolio is we want to invest with conviction. We want to have special insight and we want to be connoisseurs or experts in the places that we're investing in and with that in mind how, how large a position in any one company are you willing to take i.e how much of your portfolio will your highest conviction idea be i think the starting point is any idea that that we believe has a position or a place in our fund will have a position of between five and ten percent of our investable capital now over time, that will change. You know, we might have bought a stock that that, that represented seven percent, let's say, back in in two thousand sixteen. Obviously, as we've grown, 
that's been diluted. And if the share price wasn't cheap enough to interest us in, in topping up, but also wasn't expensive enough for us to sell, that'll get diluted. Um, so ordinarily to start off with, if it's if we've got enough conviction to buy, it's getting 5%. If we have the highest level of conviction, it's going to get 10%. We have had situations where a company that we bought um, performed exceptionally well in a, in a relatively you know, short period of time. And, and those positions have gotten as high as 20%. When they get to 20%, that's when we start to you know, start worrying about portfolio management. You know, if it was if it was just my portfolio and I was investing just myself, I'd be happy to hold, you know, two, three, four positions and, and, and I'd be satisfied with that sort of exposure and that sort of volatility. But recognizing that, you know, our investors aren't in there on a day-to-day basis seeing all of the things that are going going on under the water. But, you know, all, all they see is the headline numbers. Um, so we have a little bit more of a diversified portfolio than we would otherwise have. And so you get your 10 or you get your 12 positions. And if one position becomes so substantive, that's going to dictate what the portfolio does. That's not a position we want to be in. So, you know, if it starts to get 20%, we would start to manage it. Even if we still like it, we would probably start to manage it. Michael, can you tell us a little bit, you've, you've spoken about some of the differentiators in your process, but can you take us through a typical process? Um, you might want to bring it to life with a, a particular stock that you've been invested in or have gotten to invest in or said no. But if you could maybe take the listeners through typically the research process and and work that you do before you start a position yeah look it, it's actually a i know it seems like a simple question but it's a high it's not such a simple question to answer i think primarily because every business we look at is is going to be different you know had you asked me 10 years ago what sort of sector are you investing and what's your process i probably would have said you know we're value investors so we're looking in you know primarily in the industrial space and we're looking for businesses that are easy to understand we can go in we can see we can touch we can feel and so the process would be pretty simple but you know, as we've evolved and as we've grown and, you know, as we've matured as, as, as investors and as a fund, what we've recognised is that just because we haven't invested in sectors in the past doesn't mean that you can't find value in those sectors. So as an example, we never would have thought when we launched this fund that we'd be investing in a biotech company. Yet when a biotech company came up on our radar and we did the research, we discovered, hey, there was some substantial, there was some substantial um, value to be had in this particular company. Similarly with commodities, you know, we, we never would have thought we'd invest in commodities because, you know, at the end of the day, traditional value investment says, you know, if, if you're not in control of anything other than the price you're going to pay or the price you're going to charge for, for an asset, it's probably not got the sort of moat that you're looking for. But at the same time, as you mature, you recognise that there are certain certain times, certain periods where just about all commodities will be value, you know, through the cycle, if you can, if you can identify it properly. So, you know, a good example of that, I suppose, is in 2017, we got a phone call from, from one of our brokers and he was pitching to us um, a technology stock. And it was an interesting idea, but the sorts of ideas we're looking for are not the ones that, that brokers are spruiking to all of their friends and family. It's not the sort of idea that, that's popular in the market because those sorts of ideas tend to be fully priced. And, you know, we're looking for good businesses, but we're looking for them when they're out of favour, unpopular, and so cheap enough to, to tick off, you know, all of our sorts of boxes. So, uh, Fast was having the conversation. Uh, I was watching it as his eyes glazed over, and I said, "Well, I didn't say anything. I wrote him a note. I said, ask the broker what idea he has that he is passionate about, but is uncomfortable to share with his investors." So I passed the note to Fast, and Fast gave me a funny look, and I was like, "You know, go ask him, <laughs> see what he says." So the broker, the broker responded, "Well, actually, uh, I don't know if you've ever looked at the uranium space." And our immediate reaction was, no, we've never looked at rain in space. What should we be looking at? So he said, you know what? Let me send you some, some data. Let me send some videos and you can go do some research. You can go and do some research. So again, ordinarily, as value investors, we never would have thought we'd even be looking at this space. But when we started doing the research, what we discovered was that 
And this is very, very broad level. What we discovered was that the average cost of production for uranium is around about $45 per pound globally. At the time, the spot price was about $19 per pound. That was after the major producers all came out and said we're doing some significant cuts to production. And uranium powers about 11, 12% of the global electricity grid. So it's going to be a stick around for a while. So on a high level, it actually made a ton of sense that a lot of uranium companies might be trading at substantially below what their intrinsic value might be. And so we, you know, at the, at the time, we didn't necessarily have the sort of insight that we needed to, to pick one or two companies and invest with conviction in those companies. So what we what we did was a bit of a workaround and we we created our own, I suppose, internal ETF. You know, we created a basket. We went out there, we found all the different companies that were exposed to uranium in the Aussie market. We lined them up based on the strength of their balance sheet and how long they would be able to survive and or hopefully thrive in the event that nothing changed. And on that basis, we sort of allocated some ratings. So it was it was perhaps not the the most you know in-depth process to start off with, but as we better understood the industry, as we better you know built better relationships with management teams and, and the insiders, we, we certainly refined that over time. Um, now, as it turned out, our, our timing on the spot price was exceptional. We almost picked the bottom, which as a value investor, you never expect to achieve. From a, uh, from, from a share price perspective, because obviously we weren't buying the spot price, we were buying the, the companies that, that mine this stuff. Um, it was quite a, quite a journey. I think for about three and a half years, we did nothing, perhaps went back slightly. Um, and then I think from about November 2020, these positions all went up four or five times, um, you know, and then it became, it was, it was you know, at, at that point, it was actually an interesting conundrum for us because, you know, the, the space had all of a sudden gone from, from, you know, a pariah industry to being a hot topic. Um, and these companies that we thought were, were cheap on the basis of their earnings potential were all of a sudden looking about fully priced. And so we did some DCFs on some potential earnings going forwards and, you know, we used um, we used Paladin as the proxy, and we said, you know, if 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 spot prices get to seventy dollars, what's this thing worth? We thought it was worth about fifty five cents. So when it got to fifty five cents, we said, okay, we've got to where we need to get to. It's time to sell this thing down. Now, timing has never been um, has never been our strong point. You know, it took us three and a half years of sitting on our thumbs before anything happened, and then. Of course, as we sold at fifty-five cents, about a week later it was at seventy-five cents. About two weeks later, it was at uh, it was a dollar. And you know, as it turns out, we left a hundred percent for the next guy on the table. And the truth is, we're fine with that. We're fine with that. And I think it comes back again partly to our philosophy, which is which is recognizing the difference between investing and speculating. And it's sometimes sometimes a, you know it's a fine line. And certainly, there's nothing wrong with speculating. But I think you've got to recognize what you're doing when you're doing it. So when it got to 55 cents and it did look like it was, you know, it was coming into favor, Bass and I sat down and said, look, it's reached what we think it's worth. Do we stick around and speculate or do we take our money and look for the next good idea? And again, there is a place for speculation, but it's not within the Collins Street Valley Fund. And so we decided to sell it and we moved on and found another wonderful idea. Thankfully, we've made money on, on, on that, that next idea as well. Um, but for some people, they would say, hey, you left 100% on the table. Don't you feel a bit silly? I mean, in hindsight, perhaps I wish I held it a little bit longer, but not for a second. You know, once it was sold, I I I took it from my mind and moved on with the next idea. I think that's I think that's the only healthy way to do it. You could, if, if you're always looking back at what could have been, you're always living in the past. It's a pretty unhealthy place or, or way to be living for sure. I would say. I think there's plenty of investors who would love a hindsight portfolio, um, and I'm more than happy for them to sign me up for one uh, when when they find it. Michael, thinking about your style and your value style, 
and also the current market. What what type of price earnings multiple counts you out, broadly speaking? And I know that will differ depending on the growth profile and the quality of the earnings, but at what sort of levels do you start to become a bit nervous and it makes it very hard for you to start a position or on the other side, you start looking to exit once it reaches what sort of price earnings multiple or valuation metric? I think you have to look at a number of, you know, valuation methods um, in conjunction. I don't think you can just identify price to earnings and say that's the be all and end all. You know, when we look at things, we look at DCF, we look at price to earnings, we look at historic price to earnings, we look at comparative price to earnings globally or, or, or other companies with, with similar sort of businesses in the ASX. We look at book value, we look on return on equity. There's there's a whole host of things that we sort of combine when we come to, to our valuations. Um, but I would say that, you know, historically, on average, our, our average P would certainly be below 12. Um, you know, it's, 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 not, it's not a hard and fast rule, but, you know, we, it, it, I'm trying to think how to respond to this most directly. I think that when you start to get into double-digit multiples, you start to take some risk on future earnings and upside. And again, while that's fine, and plenty of people have made wonderful returns out of investing in growth, um, I think our preference is to sort of invest in um, more certain outcomes. You know, I, I, I was writing a presentation the other day and I was having a chat with, uh, with, with Anton. I, I was trying to sort of put my finger on the pulse of what is it that we're really looking for. I think there are really three types of businesses that we're looking for or three types of investments that we're looking for. Number one is, is, is an investment with, a potential asymmetric outcome. So we're looking at a company where the downside is, let's call it a dollar, and the upside is five or $10. If it's a 50-50 chance that, that it could go either way, that's a pretty good investment in our view to make. You make enough of those sorts of investments and you'll turn out well. Um, another potential, I'll give you an example, even, you know, very, very recently, one of our most, most recent investments that we made that would probably fit that asymmetric um, sort of scenario is an investment we made in Crown Casino just before the government announced the Royal Commission outcomes. Now, our thinking at the time was we were buying at about $9.40. And our thinking was whatever happens, the market hates uncertainty. If we get some certainty, it's going to be a net benefit for the company. But putting that aside, you know, we did an assessment of what we thought the property profile, sorry, the property um, portfolio was worth. And we got to a number close to, close to you know, $9 or thereabouts. And so our thinking was, you know, if we get this wrong, um, our risk is about 40 cents per share. If we get this right and things go well, well, we know there was a takeover on the table not that long ago for $11 and $12.50. We thought there was a fairly good chance that that might come back once we get some clarity um, on the direction of Crown. Now, as it happens this morning, there was an offer for, for Crown at $12.50 and you know, ho hopefully that, that plays out. Hopefully there becomes a bidding war. But um, you know, that, that's a pretty good example of where if you get it wrong, there's not a lot of downside risk. And if you get it right, there is some significant upside potential. I think the second sort of investment we're looking at is, is an investment where you sort of get, um, I don't like to necessarily call, yeah, I, I'm not sure that it's a great idea to, to, to hark to gambling parlance, but a free roll of the dice, where if you can structure a thing in a particular way, um, you get the free upside without any take, without taking any risk really on the downside. So a good example of that is from time to time we'll, we'll, we'll talk to companies and we'll negotiate a convertible note where if things go well, 
you know, the company obviously benefits from getting the money early and so that helps drive their prospects. But if things go well, then we'll convert those convertible notes into equity and we'll do quite well there. And if things don't go well, well, we've gotten a coupon and we'll also be able to ask for our money back. So that's a, that's a pretty good bet in, in my view. Michael, I think you um, will, uh, I know where you land on this, but it was only yesterday I had an asset consultant tell me, well, of course, um, you know, value has underperformed growth for the last 10 years and, and everyone in markets believes, uh, you know, value is dead. Um, I, I take it, given your recent performance and the position of your business, you don't believe that? I, I don't believe that. I, I, I think value underpins the basics or the, or the basis for all fundamental analysis, including growth investments. Um, you know, I think between Ben Graham and Phil Fisher, all growth investors and all value investors would sit somewhere along that line. Now, where you draw the line, you know, and say to the right is is growth and to the left is is value, I don't know. And I think it's a bit arbitrary. But essentially what we're looking to do is we're trying to assess what's the value of it today plus its future earnings and what sort of discount can we get. Now, maybe growth investors will will be happy to ascribe um, more blue sky than your traditional value investor will. But again, I think I think we're all really looking at these businesses in the same way. Um, so yeah, I don't ascribe to the concept that value investing is dead. It, it's possibly more complicated now than it would have been, say, 30 or 40 years ago, because markets seem to be more fully informed. Um, but I'd say it might have even gone too far. I think perhaps you know you can make the case now with the internet and the 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 excess and availability of information that that a lot of that core stuff that you're really looking for is is blotted out of the, or, or you're distracted from by all the noise in the markets. Yeah, and just just to get back to my third point, because I think it's worth pointing this out, especially from a value from from a value investor perspective, you know, the third kind of investment that we love to make is is we like to find, oh, I, I guess, <laughs> back to the gambling language. I suppose I'm not sure this is a great idea, but you know, back to back to the odds sort of language. You know, imagine if you if you were flipping a coin and you could wait till you saw the outcome before you made your bet. Yeah. So someone flicks a coin and they show it to you with their hand open and then you get to call heads or tails. So that might sound like a strange thing to say. No, it might sound like, you know, a unicorn. But the truth is there are plenty of companies out there that are trading at discounts to the fire sale value of their assets. There are plenty of companies out there that have promised to turn around in their business, have 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 provided and, and, and delivered on that turnaround. But the market yet hasn't cottoned onto that. So there are plenty of opportunities out there. If you prepare to look under rocks, if you prepare to look in places where other people aren't looking, value investing, to me, just seems the lowest risk way to gain exposure to asymmetric outcomes. It just, it, it, I, I couldn't disagree more with your, with your friend. I'm afraid. And Michael, in an environment where technology is moving faster than ever and you know the fortune 500 companies lifespan seems to be getting shorter and shorter mm. how do you ensure that you're not falling into what investors often describe as a classic value trap of buying something that's cheap but you know it, it's going to become a kodak of the future or a business that's severely challenged because the fundamental business model is gone how, how do you ensure you don't fall into that trap Look, th that is a good question, and I think fundamentally that that goes back to the process of identifying these businesses and working out whether or not this business is sustainable and assessing the market in general and what the risks might be. Um, I think the bigger risk from a value investor perspective, assuming you're buying the right sorts of businesses at the right sorts of prices, 
is the risk of relative underperformance. And I suspect that's what your colleague was making reference to. I mean, you look back the last five years and quote unquote growth stocks and so the market because it's been driven by growth stocks have outperformed a lot of the value sorts of um, fund managers and, 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 and ETFs. And I don't think that's surprising because I think I think fundamentally the sorts of businesses that a value investor is going to look at um, are the ones that are solid and boring and easy to understand and not at all exciting. I mean, I get excited about not exciting businesses. That's where I get the most excited because if they're easy to understand, if I can identify that they've got good management, a good culture and, and good prospects for the future, if nobody else is interested in it, well, that gets me excited because that means I'm going to get this thing for cheap. But markets have been driven by a lot of these blue sky hopes and dreams sorts of companies, growth companies. Um, and so I think the biggest risk for a value investor over the short to medium term is if we're not investing in those hopes and dreams types companies, those, those companies trading on multiples of revenue rather than multiple of earnings, because oftentimes they don't even have earnings. Well, then the market and growth funds are going to do much better than we as value investors are going to do. And, and, and I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I mean, I think you have to get comfortable with that. You know, you have to you have to recognize the risk you're taking on board versus versus the the, the reward that you hope to achieve as a result of that risk. And for me, you know, if I can't understand a business, if I can't get some sort of information advantage, well, it's just not a company I can invest in. And good luck to everybody else who has. You know, we were off, we were often asked, we were asked many, many times in the last 18 months, what do you think about afterpay? And my answer always is I think it's a wonderful initiative. I think it's wonderful to see some competition to credit cards. I just don't really know how to value this thing. And if I can't find a way to value it, or if I can't find some sort of special insight that gives me advantage versus the broader market, then there's just no value in me investing in that position or in that place. So, yeah, look, uh, I, I'm not concerned about investing in in yesterday's um, horse, and, horse and buggy carts um, because our process sort of ensures that we avoid that sort of thing. But I would say, there are occasions where horse and buggy cart companies would be of value. You know, if you can sell the carts for the value of the scrap timber, then perhaps it's got an intrinsic value. And if you can get it for less than that, then there's something to be said about that. So, you know, that, that's our approach. You know, we make sure we do the research. We make sure we, we assess the market. We make sure that we understand the industry. Um, and we make sure that this is sustainable business going forwards. Um, we're not going to get it right every time. For sure we're not. Um, but the sorts of invest investments that we're making, even when we get them wrong, uh, the downside tends to be pretty capped and there's normally plenty of time for us to, to reassess and exit if, if we do start to see things going uh, a different way to what we expected. Michael, you alluded earlier in our conversation to a differentiator in that a unique uh, fee arrangement with clients. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you've structured it that way? Yeah. <laughs> I think from a very high level, we've got really two focuses. One, one is um, capital preservation for our investors. You know, our investors aren't coming to us because they're looking to get rich quick. They're not looking for us to make them rich. These are people who have established themselves over years. They've built businesses. They've built a property portfolio. They've, they've, they've grown their superannuation fund. And they come to us to help them maintain the value of those assets over the long term and hopefully grow it for intergenerational, um, you know, passing on, to, to pass it on intergenerationally. So, so capital preservation is first and foremost on our mind, but but it's all well and good to give lip service to these these high and interesting ideas. But when it come when push comes to shove, you, you need to have something practically in place to ensure that your interests are aligned 
with with your investors and their goals. And so the way the way we structured our fund from the very beginning was, you know, we said to ourselves, what would we like to see if we were investing in a fund? What what sort of fee structure would we like to see when we're investing in a fund? And what we came up with was zero fixed management fee and a performance fee only. So essentially, if our investors aren't profiting, we're not getting paid. And it is a little bit unusual in the industry, um, but I'm not certain of many other industries around the world where you could theoretically fundamentally fail in your mandate and still get paid. And, and, and I still hark back to a conversation I had, I think, in 2014 or 2013 with, with one of my investors at the time. No, it would have been earlier. Actually, it would have been 2009-ish. Um, I went to meet this fellow. His, his name was Peter, whatever it was worth. Um, we could, we caught up for coffee in the, in, in the city, and it was at a time when I think equity markets were down about 20, 25%. And I was feeling really good about myself because this fellow's portfolio was down about 5%. I thought, well, we've outperformed the market by 15%. That's a pretty good place to be coming from. And you know, I'm looking forward to pats on the back, additional capital to look after and introductions to all of his friends. And the meeting didn't go as I expected. <laughs> it wasn't quite as positive as I'd hoped for. And you know, about 20 minutes in, I said, I said, Peter, what do you want for my life? We beat the market by 20%. You know, what more do you expect? And he said to me, and this has really stuck with me, he said, Michael, I really appreciate that you're not down 25%. And I really appreciate that you've you've beaten the market by 20%. But I can't eat relative returns. And the message really stuck with me. I think, I think people who have gone through their life, you know, building businesses, being entrepreneurs, you know, understanding how capital works. Um, I understand the hesitation of, of, of paying fixed management fees. And, and I, I tend to agree with them. Um, you know, our view is certainly within the office and, and in life, if someone's able to add value, we will pay them and we will pay them well. You know, if a stockbroker brings us a wonderful idea, they get well remunerated for their efforts. And I think it's reasonable that if we should expect that the companies we're investing in, if we should expect that the partners that we deal with are going to align their interests with our interests, I think it's only fair that our clients should expect the same thing from us. And so again, if they're not profit, we don't get paid. So the, the fee for performance is what and how is that calculated? So the, the fee for performance is 25% of performance, subject to it being at a new high watermark and also subject to it being higher than the 10-year government bond rate, the, the, the fixed, sorry, the risk-free rate. Um, it does throw up some very weird and wonderful outcomes. I mean, certainly, I think in 2020, we generated about a 33% return to our investors. And so we got paid really, really well. Um, but in 2018, when we were, again, one of the best performing funds, I think, in the country, certainly within the value space. In fact, I think on Morningstar, we might have been the only fund over that over that financial period or over that calendar year that, that generated a net positive outcome. But despite the fact that we generated a net positive outcome of about half percent, we actually didn't get paid. It just didn't matter that we outperformed the market by 9%. We didn't get paid. So, you know, it, it does provide some some strange outcomes for sure. But again, we're looking to align our interests with our investors. And, and and we think it's entirely reasonable that if we're not generating returns for them, then they shouldn't be expected to pay us. It would seem to make a lot of sense. Michael, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time today and congratulations on the recent performance. It's fantastic. Uh, thank you for joining us at Inside the Rope. No worries, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.